Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show, and today our topic is bouncing back, strengthening our vital skill of resilience. I'm delighted to be joined today by Linda Graham, who's a marriage and family therapist, that's MFT, who is an experienced psychotherapist, coach, and trainer in the recovery of resilience. She integrates practices of mindfulness, relational psychology, and modern neuroscience in her international trainings, workshops, and conferences. She's the author of Bouncing Back, Rewiring Your Brain for Maximum Resilience and Well-Being, and the book we're going to be discussing today, Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. You can find out more about her books and her teaching schedule at lindagraham-mft.net. Again, lindagraham-mft.net. Welcome, Linda Graham. I'm delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour. I'm actually truly delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Before we begin our conversation about bouncing back, strengthening our vital skill of resilience, let's begin with a moment of centering uh, so that we can all arrive, actually arrive and be here. Oh. Let's just take these few minutes to bring ourselves fully present, beginning with our bodies. So just feeling our bodies in space, feeling where whatever is supporting you. If you're sitting, if you're standing, feeling whatever connection you have to a surface that supports you. Taking a moment to feel your feet. And then turning our attention to our breath, which is a wonderful tool to help us bring ourselves fully into the present moment. So let's just notice as we take a fully conscious breath, as we inhale and exhale. As you inhale, notice the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, Notice the warm hair flowing out. 
Imagining that on each inhale, we can dive within. And with each exhale, we can relax. And feeling as that happens, as when we inhale, we dive within, feeling our attention drop from our heads down to our hearts. Just resting in this essence of our being. Noticing the natural flow of our breathing and not trying to change it, just resting. Noticing as we rest there, any thoughts or feelings as they arise. Realizing we can watch them, watch them as they arise and watch them as they pass away, resting in this essence of our being. As we rest there, we're connecting with our source, the source and substance of all that is. It's within us, between us, and all around us. And just by noticing, just by resting in the present moment, we're there. Now feeling that peace, warmth, oneness, and allowing that to pervade the mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. And noticing that whenever we need to, it just takes a few minutes to turn within and to feel that inner connection, that we can take it with us into our day, into our week, and share it with all we meet. Linda Graham, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I have really enjoyed reading your book, Resilience, as I think this topic of resilience is it's such an important life skill. There's now so much that we understand about neuroscience and how to build our capacity for resilience. And I was struck when I was reading your book that it's such a hopeful thing for us really to know and learn more about. I particularly found your statement, reliance is teachable, learnable, and recoverable, to be a very hopeful one. So how did you come to be interested in this topic of resilience? Well, Laurel, I'd already been a psychotherapist in private practice for about 20 years 
when I began writing Bouncing Back, because coping with crises and strengthening our capacities to make wise choices about our lives is so much of what our clients come to therapy for. And I wanted to be able to hand my clients something that would be useful to them for homework, that would support their ongoing healing work. And about that time, I heard that Maya Angelou said, if you want to read a book and it's not available, write it yourself. Mm. <laughs> so I, I wrote the book. And in the process of writing and teaching based on the book, I discovered how much resilience really is teachable and learnable and recoverable. And in fact, when we learn to cultivate practices of resilience, we learn that we can learn. And that becomes an empowering resource. Yes, and, and indeed. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed about the book is you sort of separate, you know, things, um, these disturbances, these things that life throws at us into categories, you know, so there's sort of the little ones, and then there's the medium sized ones, and then there's the overwhelming ones, and you give a lot of great examples. But let's, let's turn to so how do you define resilience? Well, there are many definitions of resilience bouncing back from adversity bending with the wind and going with the flow, our understanding of resilience continues to evolve based on discoveries in the behavioral sciences and modern neuroscience. So when I teach about resilience, I do begin with a definition that's offered by the American Psychological Association. Resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. And I like that definition because it frames resilience as a process, not a trait, not a noun, but okay. a process, a verb. So I do teach about the elements of resilience as the severity of the external stressors, because that's really a factor. It's one level to cope with being in a fender bender car accident to causing an injury in a car accident to causing the death of a child in a car accident. So the severity of the external stressor is a factor, as is the availability of external resources and what can we call on in terms of family and friends support and social support and medical support and legal support and financial support. But it's also the strength of our internal capacities. So resilience is innate in our being because it is innate in our brain. And so I emphasize that we have choices about strengthening those capacities in the brain, especially focusing on the brain's capacity of response flexibility. That's really the key to resilience. And that we cultivate and recover our own resilience by choosing the experiences that will actually rewire our brains to respond more flexibly, more adaptively to life's challenges and catastrophes. Mm-hmm. No, I, you know, exactly. And I, I think your book is such a really beautiful uh, resource for anyone who's interested in doing exactly what you just described, you know, which is to choose, um, you know, behaviors. And um, you give lots of ideas about how to do that um, in your book, which we'll talk about more in a bit. So as I mentioned in the introduction, and you actually just referred to resilience is your second book after bouncing back. So what inspired you to write the new book? At this time? Well, after Bouncing Back was published, I spent five years teaching nationally and internationally, and I learned from workshop and conference participants 
which tools actually worked best and why. And so I wrote Resilience More as a step-by-step training curriculum in using experiential exercises to strengthen the various intelligences of resilience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's great. And as I mentioned, it's it's just like, <laughs> it was almost overwhelming to try and pick something to talk about with you because there's so much, you know, in the book. So you start out, um, you point out that when we're faced with external problems, our first tendency is to try and fix the problem by seeking to change the circumstances or conditions in the external world. And, and this just seems like human nature, you know, so something happens and we try and, you know, sort of manipulate the external world, you know, to, about what's going on. So while this may be important in some situations, you, you point out that often the only thing we can really control is our own response to what is happening. And you write that the motto of your book is how you respond to the issue is the issue. So can you say more about that? What do you mean by that? You know, I very often find people will react to that immediately. Like it really hits home. Oh, yeah, there's a truth there. So very often we respond to any difficulty unconsciously from old automatic conditioned patterns and habits that can be very efficient. But when we become consciously aware and mindful of our patterns of response, we can choose to change them to be more effective. And choosing how to respond to an issue moves us from any kind of poor me victim stance to a more empowered agentic stance. I can't always control or change the external circumstances or conditions, but I can choose how to perceive and interpret and respond to and engage with those conditions with more flexibility and more resilience. Mm-hmm. So as I was reading your book, I was just struck with um, how it really starts with trying to understand or, or be able to see in real time our own reactions to things as they come up. And as you mentioned, you know, like little things come up every day. I mean, maybe you get cut off in traffic or there's not a parking place or you're late for work. I mean, just like on and on and on and on, right? Um, and to me, this is part of the practice of self-study, really watching ourselves, our reactions to these things as they come up. And that self-study is one of the three key practices of Kriya Yoga. And the other two are self-discipline and surrender or letting go of outcomes. So noticing our habitual patterns to things is the first step in choosing a different reaction. And then I I love the way you talk about, you talk about this. So, um, you know, I think everyone's heard, you know, the saying shit happens and you point out that while that's true, that shift happens too. So what do you mean by shift (laughs) happening? Well, because of the brain's innate and lifelong neuroplasticity, we can not only change our behaviors, we can learn to create new or rewire old neural circuitry underlying those behaviors. And we can train the brain to have new, healthier, automatic responses to life's disappointments and even disasters. And I've come to believe that because we can learn how to shift our responses to the challenges in life, we have a responsibility to learn how to do so. We can rehearse and train and pre-wire our neural circuitry to be more resilient, not just wait for a disaster to happen to learn how to do so. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you talk about, you know, the principles of things that, you know, in later in the um, in the book about, um, you know, ways that we can use these exercises to, um, you know, to 
um, be most successful at uh, at changing our changing our brains. And that was one of the things I enjoyed also about your book is you really bring in neuroscience. So um, I found that background in neuroscience really helpful to ground the practices that you uh, that you present. And you particularly start with noting that the brain learns from experience. You describe this process of conditioning as rain falling down a hillside. I thought it was a really nice uh, analogy. So can you um, can you describe that process? So a metaphor that's often given for the brain's automatic habits of conditioning, learning from experience, is that of rain falling down a hillside. So when rain first starts to fall down a hillside, it can run down the hillside any way that it wants. But eventually the falling rain starts to develop little grooves and ruts and then bigger gullies. And eventually the rain can only fall down the hillside in those grooves and gullies. So that's a metaphor for how the brain develops pathways and habitual patterns of response so that without intervention, you automatically respond to a stressor in ways that you have responded before. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And the other, um, the other uh, image that I have heard uh, used for that, it's like the, um, like a dirt road, you know, and a, a track, you know, on a dirt road. And if vehicles go down that track, you know, pretty soon there are grooves, you know, where the, you know, where the tires run, um, you know, and then, you know, they just keep getting kind of deeper and deeper, the more that track gets used. Exactly. So, so um this relates to uh, neuro, neuroplasticity. So can you describe that for our <laughs> listeners who may not know what neuroplasticity is? What is that? So the discovery of neuroplasticity is the greatest discovery of the last 150 years of modern neuroscience. There's no question. The development of new brain imaging technology about 25 years ago provided neuroscientists with irrefutable evidence that the human brain can and does grow and change and learn lifelong. So under the right condition, the brain can grow new neurons. It can strengthen the connections and communication among those neurons. It can create entirely new neural pathways and circuitry that allow us to not only learn from new experiences, but rewire the conditioned learning from previous experiences. So the brain can change its patterns of response to experience, positive or negative. And we can change the brain's patterns of response to life experience lifelong. Mm -hmm. So the human brain learns from experience all the time. Any experience, any experience at all. In truth, every experience causes neurons in the brain to fire, to exchange information through electrical and chemical signals. So whether that's positive or negative, the brain reacts to any experience and learns patterns of response, positive or negative, by repeating the experience and thus repeating the neural firing. So the well-known axiom in modern neuroscience is from Canadian neuroscientist Donald Hebb. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. And these wired pathways will be strengthened by repetition. It creates new neural circuitry that can become stable and even habitual. So neuroplasticity, which is innate in the brain, is what allows us to learn and change and grow lifelong. Right. Which I think is, um, you know, it, it's, 
uh, amazing, first of all, because it's so different from what I was taught. I went to a medical school uh, from 1984 to 1988. And of course, at that time, what you just described was totally not known. And the, the you know, the, the teaching was, there are no new neurons, you know, neurons don't, you know, don't continue to develop, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. throughout, throughout our lifetimes. It's kind of like you had what you had and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's so much more potential and, um, you know, this opportunity to change these conditioned patterns that we were just describing. So relating what you just said about neuroplasticity to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about conditioning and these mm-hmm. ruts in the road or these pathways that the rain takes, you know, down mm-hmm. the hill. Um, basically, what we've discovered in neuroscience is, is, you know, I mean, that is what is happening, right? Mm-hmm. Is that's kind of an image of what's right. happening. Right. At the time you were in medical school, the folk wisdom was you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Right, exactly. And that's what neuroplasticity has turned on its head. That yes, we can learn new patterns and new ways of coping. And that's why I'm saying I think once we know we can and we learn how we can, I think we have a responsibility to learn to become more resilient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and really, uh, I mean... You know, when I was thinking about about this idea, you know, of resilience, I think our uh, it has so much to do also with our health, you know, our ability to bounce back, because as we age, our bodies obviously also age and we can develop, you know, medical issues. And there's such a difference in dealing with a, you know, with a chronic problem, um, a cancer diagnosis, for example, you know, which these days often, you know, becomes a chronic disease, you know, rather than mm-hmm. a, you know, um, I mean, you, you know, oftentimes people are living much longer now with the new, you know, chemotherapy protocols and all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the resilience that the person has to deal with that. Um, and that's what I think is really exciting, you know, is that is that this is something that has such a deep, deep impact, you know, on mm-hmm. in people's lives, and to realize that it's a skill, that it's a right. skill that's teachable, that's learnable, that it's recoverable. And, you know, oftentimes, we may get overwhelmed and not be able to cope, but that that that's the word of recoverable that I mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like, okay, you've been overwhelmed, but you can still um, rebuild, you know, those resources of resilience. Right? And as at, right, and as I said earlier on, we can not only develop resilience in the moments when we need it to cope with a cancer diagnosis or the death of a loved one, but we can build resilience ahead of time. And in the last chapter of resilience, I offer many, many exercises and tools that will strengthen the functioning of the brain in the first place. Mm-hmm. Exercise is what allows the hippocampus to grow new neurons. And sleep is what allows the prefrontal cortex to rest from its executive functioning so it can function well the next day, managing our impulses and, and doing our judgments and learning something new, especially if it's difficult, um, builds a cognitive reserve of mm-hmm. brain cells in the brain. So there are things that we can do ahead of time to keep the brain functioning well as we age. And I think that's also a part of empowering ourselves to claim ourselves to be more resilient. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we were talking about this process of neuroplasticity and this process of conditioning, you know, how the brain learns from experience, basically that, you know, that process of rain, you know, flowing down the hill. What was so interesting to me is that Patanjali, who wrote the Yoga Sutras thousands of, of years ago, really also already understood this process. 
um, in that there's actually even a word for it in yoga. The re repetitive patterns are called samskaras or mental impressions, which refers to this tendency for us to repeat a pattern that we've used before. So if something happens and we've been triggered, for example, to anger, you know, someone cuts us off in traffic. And, you know, we see this all the time, right? People get really angry about that. And you realize it's just like a, like a reflex. It's, it's on you before you know it. It's just happening. You're in it, you know, right in the middle mm -hmm. of it. Um, and uh, I think it, it's so reassuring uh, that this process that we've been talking about, this process of, of, of these pathways is there for us to use also in a positive way. Right. So once we realize that, you know, the reactions that we're having are not the ones that we want to have, you know, we can change it. And in that same way that, the, you know, it's the rain falling down a new hill. Right. Mm -hmm. That initially it may be diff difficult to to entrain that new behavior. But once we've got it going, it that's where we go. That's so where we go instead. Let me say we understand the mechanisms of brain change now, so I'll do that very quickly. We know how conditioning operates. We can do new conditioning, choosing new experiences that will create new neural pathways, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating gratitude, cultivating kindness. We can use reconditioning, which is juxtaposing negative and positive and holding them in awareness at the same time, which will rewire the neural circuitry of the old pattern. So that's how we can rewire trauma responses. Then deconditioning, which is simply allowing ourselves to go into a sense of reverie, imagination, visualization, the mental play space of the brain, where the brain will come up with its own intuitions. It will come up with its own way of connecting the dots and making new associations. So we're learning how to use these mechanisms of brain change to change the old conditioning or create new conditioning. Oh, that's lovely that that you you know work that in. Uh, you talk a lot about that in the book, and the exercises are actually grouped by which of those processes you're using. So that that's actually really helpful for people to um, have that as um, as uh, background. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Let's see, I, I did want to share the Viktor Frankl quote that you include in the book because I thought it was just really lovely. It's, uh, here's the quote, between a stimulus and a response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. The last of human freedoms <clears throat> is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, which is exactly what we've been talking about. So it's really lovely. And with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to The Yoga Hour with our guest, Linda Graham, marriage family therapist or MFT, who is an experienced psychotherapist, coach, and trainer in the recovery of resilience. You can find out more about her books and her teaching schedule at lindagraham-mft.net. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. 
Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the show, and I'm here today with Linda Graham, Marriage and Family Therapist, or MFT, to discuss resilience and some practices we can use to help build more of it. I did want to mention the book again, which is the book we're talking about today, Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster, and the website, lindagraham-mft.net. So once again, here we are, Linda, and uh, you list five practices in the book that accelerate the processes of brain change, which we've been talking about. That's what this is all about, really changing our brains. Um, and the first one that you mention is little and often works best. And I, I wanted to spend a minute on this, a few minutes on this, because I do feel like this is a really important, you know, message. Um, would you say more about what neuroscience has discovered about this? So again, repeating that any experience causes neurons in the brain to fire. And that firing repeated over time creates new neural circuitry. So part of the power of trauma to affect our brain is that a traumatizing event can change our brain's neural circuitry instantly. Mm -hmm. And it can be very difficult to rewire our again. But for our purposes of training the brain for resilience, when we can cultivate positive experiences even small experiences, and repeat them many times. That's how the brain can build new enduring circuitry that becomes the foundation of new habitual behavior. So we learn and encode new patterns through conscious choice, the new conditioning, reconditioning, deconditioning that I mentioned just before the break. And those small experiences repeated many times become the new neural circuitry that we no longer have to think about. The brain will now do that new pattern automatically. So one of the easiest exercises to experience this is hand on the heart. We learn to place our hand on our heart center anytime there is a startle or an upset to help the body brain calm down and recover our nervous system's equilibrium. And with enough practice, that behavior becomes quite automatic. We place our hand on our heart without even having to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the other uh, thing I was thinking about is that, um, you know, most um, traditions that, you know, that recommend or have meditation as a practice, there are so many benefits from meditation, but it really is different if you meditate daily versus having one longer session, you know, on the weekend. That's um, right. And this is kind of the, you know, the neuroscience that backs that up. And so I really wanted to stress that for people, you know, that a daily practice, which is exactly what, you know, what any, like, you know, any meditation teacher I've ever, I've ever spoken to or heard, that's always the message, you know, mm-hmm. and here it is little and often works best you know, from a, from a uh, neuroscience standpoint. And I will often recommend people practice something three times a day for 30 days. Mm. That is, that is not a magic number in neuroscience, but it does help us remember to do the practice. And when you do something three times a day for 30 days, you are creating the habit to do it. And you're more automatically going to go there and use it as a resource. No, I, I really um, like that very simple one that you just talked about, that practice of just putting your hand on your heart. And I did it, you know, and myself <laughs> as you were talking. And it is soothing. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is soothing. There's something about touch, you know, and particularly in that area 
Um, it's, um, you know, I hope our listeners have tried it as we've been discussing it here and they can learn from themselves. And then three times a day for 30 days, that's not so hard, right? Put your hand over your heart, you know, when you get uh, startled by any of the many, many things that come at us on a daily basis. And pay attention to your experience shifting as you do that. Mm-hmm. All of these practices require conscious awareness in order to really install them in our neurocircuitry. So you have the habit of putting your hand on your heart, but you pay attention to how you shift your experience when you do that. That's what's empowering. That's what makes it likely that we'll go back again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So as I think you may have mentioned, 130 exercises are in your book that help us to strengthen our resilience. Um, and that is like, it is an amazing variety. <laughs> so really a wealth of resources. And I wanted to spend um, the rest of our time, you know, here discussing a few of them with you. And you divide the practices into five uh, sections or chapters, one for each of the five different kinds of intelligence that are foundational to resilience. And those are somatic practices, emotional relational within ourselves, relations with others, and reflective. Um, And so again, there's a whole chapter on each of these and many, many, you know, ideas about um, how you can um, build up your resilience. Of course, this is the yoga hour. And of course, one of the practices, one of the many, many practices of yoga are asana, you know, are the yoga uh, postures. And I noticed that you use the yoga asana practice of child's pose as one of the practices Mm -hmm. for developing somatic intelligence. So what benefits do you see from practicing child's pose? So the coordination of movement and breath and awareness it's helpful to return the body brain to our natural baseline physiological equilibrium. We're not too revved up in the sympathetic branch of the nervous system. We're not too shut down in the parasympathetic branch. Child's pose helps the body brain come to relaxation and ease while still remaining conscious and aware of our experience. So we get to consciously use that relaxation as a resource for resilience. Mm-hmm. Ah, that was great. I, I enjoyed seeing that there. So another exercise from the somatic intelligence section uh, that I that I was struck by was belly botany, uh, which is on, I believe, page 47. So can you give us an overview of this belly botany? What, mm-hmm. uh, what does that look like when you practice that? Okay, so I actually did learn this from a ranger leading a group in Yosemite National Park, and he called it belly botany. But you find a one-square-foot patch on a beach, in a meadow, in a forest, in your own backyard, in a city park. And you lie comfortably on your stomach so that your eyes can focus on your patch from a height of about six inches. And you come into a sense of presence and you defocus your attention from any concerns for yourself. You concentrate on what's happening in your patch. So you notice the dirt or the sand, the plants and the bugs. You notice any activity, any stillness, any change of the light and shadows. You notice the relationship of of things one to another. You notice harmonies and colors and shapes. You notice any oddities. You notice signs of life and death and aggression and beauty all on a tiny scale. So you observe your patch for two minutes or more. And after those two minutes, you stand up and you refocus your attention on the horizon of the larger landscape 
all around you. And you trace the shapes of the trees and the hills and the buildings you see, and you observe this larger horizon for two minutes or more. And again, you notice activity and stillness, changes in light and shadow, changes in the relationships of things one to another, noticing harmonies of color and shapes, noticing oddities, noticing signs of life and death aggression and beauty, all on a vast scale. Then you toggle back and forth between the micro view and the macro view as much as you wish. You let your mind play on its own for two minutes or more with the contrast of the small and the vast scale. Oh, it's, it's, I just think it's a really, um, it's a great idea. It's beautiful. So what, why is it important to switch our visual perspective between seeing something very close up and then widening our awareness? What does this bring for us? So when we do this switching, we're repeatedly shifting our visual perspective. That also builds the muscles of, the brain isn't a muscle, but it builds the muscles of response, flexibility, in your brain. That's the core capacity of resilience. So we shift from one perspective to another, and that helps us shift our view of our place on the planet, and it puts our problems in the larger scheme of things. So that flexibility, changing gears, changing perspectives, is a big part of strengthening our resilience. And that's a beautiful, fun way to cultivate that. Getting back to what you were, you know, mentioning earlier, it's a shift, right? And shift happens, yeah, and this is a, right. actually a, an example where you can actually you can really feel it in your body of a shift happening. I think that's why that's why I liked it. Yeah. So uh, the next uh, section is on developing emotional intelligence, and uh, of course, you know, emotions are incredibly powerful, and and they can come up very quickly. As I was talking about anger, you know, being mm-hmm. triggered for certain people. Um, and they obviously can influence us in terms of how we speak and how we act. And when emotions are painful, we may tend to you know, push them away. So how does having a great, greater awareness of our feelings or emotions help us to develop more resilience? So what the neuroscientists are learning about emotions is that emotions are signals to act. Emotions are sensations flowing up from the body. They alert the brain to notice and pay attention to something. The emotion itself is a signal. Pay attention, something important is happening here. And when we can be aware of our emotions and be with those emotions, not reactive, not shut down, not hijacked, then we can get the useful message of the emotion alerting us to take action. So anger will lead us to protest injustice or betrayal. And fear will cause us to move away from something or someone that's toxic. And sadness causes us to pull in resources of comfort and support. So when we can be with the emotions and get the message of the emotion, we can let go of the message and take wise action. Mm-hmm. And it's not a universal skill for people to really be aware of how emotions you know, may be impacting their body. So I, I enjoyed the attending practice. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you talk us through that one? Yes, and the centering meditation that you led us in in the beginning reminded me of this practice. It's learning to attend to our experience. So you sit quietly for the purposes of this exercise. You sit quietly in a place where you won't be interrupted for about five minutes, and you come into a sense of presence, knowing you're here in your body, in your mind, in this moment, in this place. And then you begin to notice 
whatever comes to the forefront of your conscious awareness for the next five minutes. And things spontaneously will. Whatever body sensation, feeling, or thought comes up, simply notice it. And if you want to sophisticate that practice, you can notice your reactions to that sensation or feeling or thought. But you acknowledge that it's shown up on your radar and you allow it to be there and you accept that it is there. So in in this initial part of the practice, you're not wondering about it or trying to figure it out or fix it. You're just attending to it enough to register the experience in your awareness, attending and being with without reacting or pushing away without fixing, that deepens our capacity to become present to and consciously aware of our experience without needing to leave it or push it away. That helps us maintain our emotional equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just um, <clears throat> such a simple practice, but I, I was struck, and, and then oftentimes people will realize that um, if they're feeling uh, an emotion or if there is an emotion associated with what's, you know, whatever comes up in their, you know, mental field, um, there often is a place in their body, you know, where they can feel it. So they might Mm -hmm. feel it as a tightness, you know, in their chest or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, some kind of a, maybe a tightness in their throat, you know, and they want to say something. Um, And so those picking up on those cues early is another way of, um, of, um, you know, being aware in the moment, you know, oh, my throat's tight, you know, what, um, what has that been associated with in the past, um, it can just be really, really valuable. Yes. So, uh, again, another practice uh, in the emotional intelligence chapter uh, is called the awe practice. So how does that awe practice strengthen our emotional intelligence? So awe is one of the positive emotion practices like gratitude, kindness, compassion, delight, that shifts the functioning of the brain out of negativity, out of reactivity, out of contraction, into more receptivity and openness to learning, to the bigger picture and more possibilities. So awe is one of those practices that helps us antidote the built-in negativity bias of the brain. So awe is not a luxury. Experiencing awe promotes resilience by challenging our usual ways of seeing the world and our place in it. Awe promotes curiosity and exploration, but it also simultaneously soothes the nervous system. We're part of something so much larger. It puts our day-to-day concerns into perspective and it broadens our horizons. We actually feel more interconnected with other people. And experiences of awe are always available in nature, in art and culture, the smile of a baby, in the blossoming of a flower. We simply have to notice these moments and savor them and install them as a resource in our memory. So that's the practice, basically, is just noticing, noticing when there's something, you know, that you see that's beautiful, or that strikes you in that way, and not sort of skipping over it, but really feeling what that feels like in your body. Yes, noticing it and savoring it and absorbing Mm -hmm. it and installing that feeling as a a memory, as a resource. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the teachings of yoga and regular listeners, you know, of course, know know this, you know, meditation is really a key practice Um, and it does so much for us. It quiets the myriad thoughts in our minds, um, allows our own inner wisdom, our inner peace to be revealed and accessed much more easily anytime, even when we're not, you know, when we're not meditating. Um, It also trains us to be the observer so that we can see more clearly and make wiser decisions 
And in chapter six, there's, you know, a lot of information about mindfulness and it, it really permeates a lot of the other exercise you include. And of course, mindfulness is, is meditation. It's a, it's a form of meditation. So you say on page 172 that by strengthening the pathways that stabilize and steady the brain's attention, you can learn to simply be with what is and consciously reflect on the truth of the experience before choosing to change it or to shift your responses to it. So obviously meditation has just amazing, you know, benefits. So what do you see as the importance of, of mindfulness in increasing our resilience? So mindfulness allows us to notice our experience and our reactions to our experience. And when we can notice our reactions, we can choose to shift them. So monitor and modify is Dan Siegel's phrase in his book, Mindsight. We can notice our emotional reactivity, our mental thought patterns, our behaviors, whether they're skillful or unskillful. With mindfulness, we can see clearly. And then we can discern options. And then we can make wise choices. A deep practice of mindfulness also allows us to perceive what's happening but not take our experience so personally. We're available to deal with what is without having to prove ourselves or defend ourselves. So that opens up the possibilities quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> One of the exercises um, for strengthening our ability to see clearly and make wise decisions is a practice you call checking in. Would you take us would you take us through that one, please? Right. So checking in is simply practicing paying attention very regularly as you go throughout your day, maybe every five minutes at first, and then eventually every few hours. You become aware of any felt sense in your body as you ask yourself, am I experiencing anything positive in this moment? Am I experiencing any confusion or suffering? Am I experiencing any excitement or anxiety or loneliness or other feelings. So there's no shame or blame attached to those answers. There's no need to change or fix anything immediately. You're simply noticing what's going on, being aware of it, being with it, and then deciding consciously if you want to shift that thought or that mood or that behavior. And if you do feel like something needs shifting, you take a moment to reflect how are you relating to what's happening? Is there a different response that might be more skillful or more effective? And by cultivating that habit of checking in with yourself frequently, you are prioritizing seeing clearly and choosing wisely and strengthening the neural pathways in your brain of response flexibility that will allow you to do that little and often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, it's very, very simple. It's one of the reasons I liked it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, in a really lovely practice, I would oftentimes um, uh, use a a trigger for, you know, kind of, it sort of was a modified or a simpler, you know, version of that. But I I was when I was seeing patients, I'm retired now, but when I was seeing patients, I would pause a moment right at the door with my, you know, with my hand on the doorknob, that was my trigger, you know, when I touched the doorknob is just to take a, a moment there, and really just you know, center myself, you know, and feel what I was feeling. 
um, before I then went in the room so that I wasn't, you know, <laughs> harried and, you know, and just, uh, you know, and, and unfocused right. um, practices are often a really, really, um, right. you know, there's a lot of things going on, but um, it was just a lovely way of me coming yeah. back to myself. Yeah. So I was just going to mention, you can use a repetitive thing like that, you know, that you mm-hmm. can trigger it, you know, trigger these practices when you are doing something like for me, it was touching that doorknob, but for you, you know, mm-hmm. it might be, you know, something else that you do, you know, every, you know, few hours or whatever you can tie it you can tie it to that mm-hmm. remember yourself to do that and of course now that we have you know smart watches etc you can set little alarms you right. know and have little mindfulness moments you know mm-hmm. in our days which are really which are really really nice we are pointing to something very very important here is that not only can we use a positive trigger as a cue to check in and pay attention but we can train ourselves to use a negative trigger as a cue And one of mine, of course, is road rage. I get angry if I'm driving and someone cuts me off. But that becomes a cue to pay attention. Mm. What am I experiencing and do I want to shift it? So that becomes a new habit of using something negative as a cue to practice something positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and for me, that's what well, certainly for medita- meditation does for me, you know, and that's why I like that Viktor Frankl quote. He, He was talking about that space. You know, mm-hmm. there is that space, something happens and then there's a space. And for me, what happens in my meditation practice is it opens up that space a little bit. Mm-hmm. So rather than just getting thrown into whatever my, you know, that, that pathway is, that's my repetitive pathway, whether it's, you know, anger or, you know, blame or whatever, I, it, there's that moment and you can, you can actually feel it. It, it is mm-hmm. a space. You yeah. really can feel it. And it's wonderful when it opens up a little bit more and you can catch yourself in the middle of it. Well, mm-hmm. actually even better at the beginning of it, you know, yes. where you see there's a choice. And yes. the experience for me was, it, it kind of worked backwards where originally I would be aware of it, but only kind of after the, at the end of it, it's like, oh, shoot, I wish I hadn't <laughs> taken that path, you know, but then it backed up, you know, and then it was like in the middle, I had a little bit of awareness and eventually it got to the beginning <laughs> where I had that exactly. space, which was exactly. great. <laughs> exactly. You're training your brain. Yeah, exactly. So we've got about uh, two more minutes and I wanted to have a chance for you to have the last word. So in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, when we learn tools of resilience, we learn that we can learn these tools. And as we experience ourselves becoming more resilient, we see ourselves as resilient. Resilience becomes a way of being. And that's how we come to trust that we can cope with anything, with anything at all. And we can. So learning from coping with adversity, even from overwhelming, life-shattering events, can open the door into post-traumatic growth where we can experience new possibilities, new opportunities, new meaning because of the process of recovery from the event, not just in spite of it. That's where we can really feel empowered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which again is the hopefulness coming back full circle to what I said at the very beginning. I think that this work and, and our current understanding of neuroscience, it's really hopeful. Um, and I think that that hope is sometimes it's hard for people to feel when they're in the you know grips when they've had a traumatic event or they've had um, some you know disastrous change you know that's come upon them. Um, but you know even in that you know understanding these things there is hope there 
You know, there mm-hmm. is hope to recover that resilience and rise to face, you know, whatever life is throwing at us uh, with mm-hmm. more grace and ease and, and comfort. And the scientists also know that the more we practice being resilient, when something truly catastrophic happens, we're already resilient to cope with it. We're not learning in that very moment of disaster. And so we can actually train our resilience, not just learn it when we need to, but train it ahead of time. And I think that's really, really important. Absolutely. And with that, we're at the close of the program. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show. We've been discussing bouncing back, strengthening our vital skill of resilience with our guest today, Linda Graham, MFT. I keep mentioning the MFT because it's in your it's it's in your uh, your uh, website. So mm-hmm. MFT is marriage and family therapist. Um, Linda is the author of the book we've been discussing today, Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. You can find out more about her books and her teaching schedule at lindagraham-mft.net. Thank you so much, Linda, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. Thank you for having me. This has been a real pleasure, and I hope it's helpful to people. Yes. Thanks so much. Join us next time when our subject will be yoga and Ayurveda, a sacred relationship. My guest will be Masvidal, yoga and Ayurveda teacher and author of the book, Sun, Moon, and Earth, the Sacred Relationship of Yoga and Ayurveda. We'll be exploring how the ancient sciences of yoga and Ayurveda intersect and how these traditions can be integrated into our lives for balanced living and spiritual evolution. A few announcements. Yogacharya O'Brien continues to travel, and in August, September, and early October, we'll be in Raleigh, North Carolina, Kalamazoo, Michigan, in Italy, and in Germany. You can find out more about these upcoming events from Yogacharya's speaking schedule on her author website, ellengraceobrien.com. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember to sign up uh, and subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're enjoying the show, think about sharing it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, regular host, uh, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producer Ann Hayes, um, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. 